hundred years ago, the church had drifted from the Bible. But as people searched God's Word, they rediscovered the truth that the only way to be right with God is by faith alone, in Christ alone, revealed in the Bible alone, received by grace alone, and all for God's glory alone. Those five truths brought about the Reformation, and as you might be aware, its 500th anniversary is being celebrated this year. We started looking at these five truths last week um, by looking at the Bible alone, and we continue this week by looking at faith alone. So why don't you take a Bible and turn to Romans chapter 3. If you don't have a Bible, uh, one of the stewards will hand you one, just put your hand up, and you'll find it on page 1130. So that's Romans chapter 3. And as you're doing that, let me just explain that at the center of the Reformation was a question. And the question was this, how can we be right with God? In fact, we can go further and say that this question isn't just at the heart of the Reformation, it's at the heart of Christianity as a whole. The biggest problem facing humanity is God's justice. God is committed to judging sin. Your sin, my sin. Sin is always first and foremost against God. And if we are against God, he is against us. And if we are against God, we cannot be right with him. Romans chapter 1 verse 18 says as much. It says this, The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. This is our situation. And so the question is, how can we be right with God? Or more accurately, how can sinful humanity be right with a holy God? It was this question about how to be right with God which caused a young German monk called Martin Luther a great deal of turmoil and distress. Born in Saxony in Germany in 1483, he went to university in Erfurt where he graduated with two degrees in 1505. And he was about to study law when he was almost struck with lightning, uh, almost killed by being struck with lightning, and decided to become a monk in 1506. Luther was very diligent in his duties as a monk. He read and he fasted and he prayed, all as part of a very strict routine. And yet despite all these religious endeavors, he couldn't get any assurance that he was right with God. And when one of Luther's friends died, it made things all the more worse. He became terrified at the thought of God's judgment. On top of these experiences, the teaching of the church at that time didn't exactly help Luther. The church taught that only sins that were confessed could be forgiven. And so Luther became obsessive about confessing sin. He'd spend hour after hour confessing sin to his superiors, and then shortly after he'd finished, he would come back and get straight back into it thinking of some other sin that he'd forgotten about. He saw repentance as a work that would make him right with God. One of his superiors once said to him, look here, Brother Martin, if you're going to confess so much, why don't you go do something worth confessing? Stop coming in here with such flumery and fake sins. And there's a challenge for you this morning. Uh, try and fit that word flumery uh, into your Sunday lunch conversations. When he was 26, Luther was sent to be a lecturer in biblical studies at the new university in Wittenberg. It was here, as he studied Augustine and lectured in Romans and Galatians and the Psalms, that Luther came to understand how sinful man can be right with the holy God 
of the universe. But what was it that Luther came to understand from the Bible for the first time? Well, let's turn to Romans chapter 3, verses 21 to 26 to find out. Romans chapter 3, starting at verse 21. But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been made known, to which the law and the prophets testify. This righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There is no difference between Jew and Gentile, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and all are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith. He did this to demonstrate his righteousness because in his forbearance, he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. He did it to demonstrate his righteousness at the present time, so as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. May God bless the reading of his word. Martin Luther called verses 21 to 26 the chief point and the very central place of the epistle, that is the, the letter to the Romans, and of the whole Bible. And it's easy to see why, because in these verses, we see how we're declared right before God. Do you see it there in verse 22? This righteousness, in other words, this declaration of being right before God, being approved by God, is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. So just to be really clear, how are we made right with God? Through faith. Now the problem with slogans like faith alone and Bible alone is that they need some unpacking. And so we're going to do that this morning as we focus in on faith alone. And I have three points to make. And the first one is this. The focus of faith is Jesus. Look again at verse 22. Notice how in this verse, the Apostle Paul says that this righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ. Now look at verse 26 and see how it ends with a similar expression. Those who have faith in Jesus. When we speak about faith alone, this is just shorthand for saying faith in Jesus Christ alone. Jesus is the object of faith. He is the focus. He is the one that we're talking about when we talk about the truth of faith alone. Now, I apologize if this seems a little bit basic to you, but I think it's important just to nail that down from the outset because sometimes the way people talk about faith, it seems like they think faith is a, a kind of general hopefulness a sort of vague optimism about the future rather than something that is centered on the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. But here Paul says in verse 22 and in verse 26 that the object of Christian faith is Jesus. From time to time you might hear people say, I wish I had your faith. Well, if we understand verse 22 and verse 26 properly, this statement is wrong on two fronts. First, it suggests that faith in itself is what counts. President Eisenhower is supposed to have said that America was founded on a deeply religious faith and I don't care what it is. That would be a typical view held even today. But as Paul points out in verse 22 and 26, if we're a Christian, our faith is in a person and that person is Jesus Christ. 
The second problem with people saying that they wish they had your faith is that it suggests some people have faith and others don't, when the truth is that everyone has faith and they show it many times a day. Many of you here in front of me are exercising faith by sitting in these shiny new red chairs. And the rest of you are exercising even more faith by sitting in these ancient pews on this ancient balcony. If you stick around for coffee and biscuits after service, and I hope you, you do that, you'll exercise faith that our cups are free of germs and that our food won't poison you. And then afterwards, some of you will jump on a train or a tram and you'll have faith that these vehicles take you to where you want to go. We're exercising faith all the time. Now, it's one thing to have faith in what you're sitting on and what you eat and how you travel, but it's an, another thing to answer the question, what is it you have faith in to make you right with God? Is it in your own morality? Would you say that you're a, a moral person? Is it your religious works? Would you say you're a religious person? Or are you just going to plead ignorance when one day you come face to face with God, claim that you weren't aware of him, that there was no evidence? Well, it's interesting that in the run-up to the passage that we're looking at this morning, Paul has been unpicking these very arguments in the first part of Romans. If you flick over to chapter 1, verse 17, here is where Paul sets out his manifesto. He says there in verse 17, For in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last. And then having stated his position like that, he then deals with three possible objections to that statement. The pagan says, I don't accept the fact that man is justified by faith because I was ignorant of God. So God is unjust to condemn me just because I went my own way and did not obediently have faith in Jesus Christ. I should be pardoned and given eternal life because I was ignorant. I was unaware. Paul's answer to this person in chapter 1 is quite simple. You are not ignorant of God. All of creation points to him. All of it proclaims that God is real. You're to be judged on the basis of what you did with the little knowledge that you had. You rejected even the little that God revealed to you. Therefore, God is just in condemning you. You are guilty as charged. And then the moral man steps up and he says... I reject faith in Christ. I don't need God's standards for salvation. I am moral and conform to my own standards. I gained salvation on the basis that, that I was moral and kept the standards that I knew about. Paul responds to this argument at the start of chapter 2, and he basically says, God will judge you according to your own standards. However, you must keep those perfectly to be acceptable to God, since your way of salvation makes no provision for the forgiveness of sin. But you were not as good as you could have been, for you did the things that you condemn other, people's for, other people for doing. Therefore, God is just in condemning you. So you're guilty as well. And then a third person steps up. He's, he's a religious Jew. His argument is this. I reject the fact that we must be justified by faith. As a Jew, I have many advantages because I am part of God's chosen people. I should be saved for that alone. God would be unjust in judging his special people. But Paul responds to this argument in the second part of chapter 2. And he says this, The law was written to the Jew, that's right, but you've not kept the law. And since the only way to be right with God is to do exactly what he says, you lose your right to salvation on this basis. God is just in condemning you too. You're guilty as well. And then look how Paul sums up the situation in chapter 3, verse 9. Jews and Gentiles alike are all under the power of sin. 
He goes on in the next couple of verses. There is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands. There is no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They have together become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. And then just in case his readers have still not got the message that they can't be declared right with God through their own efforts, comes the final nail in the coffin. That is chapter 3, verse 20. Therefore, no one will be declared righteous in God's sight by the works of the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of our sin. So we see then in the first few chapters of Romans, Paul has declared that neither ignorance nor morality or the law can provide a basis for man's salvation. Instead, as we reach this incredible turning point from chapter 3, verse 20 to 3, verse 21, we discovered that only faith can do that. Only faith alone in the Lord Jesus Christ makes us right with God. And the truth is that this has always been this way. Faith alone has always been in Jesus Christ alone. Do you see that in verse 21? Verse 21 says that the law and the prophets, in other words, the Old Testament, pointed towards Jesus coming. What was hinted at and signposted to in the Old Testament has been made known in stunning high definition as Jesus leaves his father's side and comes to earth. You see, it wasn't as if there was an Old Testament way to get right with God, and now there's this New Testament way through Jesus Christ. No, God's plan was always to send his son, and verse 21 tells us that the whole of the Old Testament was pointing towards that event. And that radically alters how we read the Bible. If you don't understand that the Old Testament is pointing towards Jesus coming back, then it just looks like an instruction manual or a a biography of, of a bunch of people for you to copy. Be devoted like Moses, dare to be like Daniel, Joshua's 10 steps to being a better leader, and so on. But that's not how we're meant to read read Scripture. When you read Scripture with Jesus as the hero, as the rescuer, you come to see it as the greatest story ever told. And so what is the point of the Old Testament? Well, according to Paul and to Jesus himself, it's an unfolding drama with Jesus at the center. You see, the Old Testament saints were not super obedient heroes of the faith. No, they were just like us. They were sinners who, despite their failings, were given the faith to cling to God's promise. And Paul points this out in verse 21. He points out that the Old Testament itself testifies to faith alone in Jesus Christ alone. If you take some time uh, to, to read about the Old Testament characters listed in the New Testament in Hebrews 11, you'll see how each one of them lived by faith. And you'll see it's specifically mentioned in Hebrews chapter 11 verse 26 that Moses, as in Old Testament Moses, regarded disgrace for the sake of Christ as of greater value than the treasures of Egypt. And so when Jesus comes along, he's not plan B. He is not God's afterthought. All of scripture, Old Testament included, points to faith in Jesus Christ. And when all is said and done, the question we must answer is this. To be right with God, who or what is our faith in? Is it ourselves, our morality, our religiousness, or are we just going to plead ignorance? Or is it faith in the Lord Jesus Christ? Well, the teaching of the Bible is that our faith must be in Jesus Christ alone. And the next thing I want us to consider is what this faith leads to. And so my second point is this. The result of faith 
is righteousness. The result of faith is righteousness. Look with me at verse 22. This righteousness is given through faith. And if you flick over to chapter 5, verse 1, Paul words it slightly differently, but the meaning is exactly the same. Look with me at uh, chapter 5, verse 1. Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, as I said earlier, when we're made right, righteous, we're talking about being declared right with God. And justified means the same thing. A perfect record is given to us. And you don't find this amazing truth anywhere else. In other religions, we need to develop a righteousness and, and hold it out to God and hope that that is acceptable to him. It's like handing in your CV to a company and hoping that it's enough to get you the job. But it doesn't work that way with God. The good news about Jesus Christ, the gospel, it says that God has developed a perfect righteousness and he offers it to us and by it we're accepted. This is amazing news. This is the beauty of the gospel, the uniqueness of the gospel that everyone needs to hear, whether it's in Hoik or the Hebrides or overseas, we all need to hear this beautiful message of the gospel. But how does it come about? Well, the answer is there in verses 24 and 25. Look with me at, at verse 24. And all are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. The object of our faith is Jesus Christ alone because Jesus Christ alone redeemed us. What do I mean by that? Well, in the Old Testament times, if you got yourself into debt, you'd have to sell yourself into slavery. It might take your whole life to pay it back, uh, to pay your debt back. And Paul is using similar language here to talk about sin. In fact, in Romans 6, he makes it even clearer when he states that we're slaves to sin. And he is saying here in verse 24 that Christ Jesus was our redeemer, the one who frees us from slavery. Not the slavery of, a, of an earthly master, but slavery to sin and death and judgment. But how specifically did Jesus do that? How did he specifically redeem us? Well, look at verse 25. God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith. Here we get to the very heart of what it means to have faith in Jesus Christ alone. Christ's sacrifice of atonement, which is often called propitiation, which if you're a Colin Buchanan fan, you know it means God's anger turned away. God's anger is turned away from you and from me, those who deserve his anger, because someone else takes it in our place. God himself, Jesus Christ. As Jesus is presented as a sacrifice of atonement, as a propitiation through the shedding of his blood, he takes the full force of God's wrath and makes the payment for sin that we deserve to pay, but could not. Jesus is the perfect sacrifice who turns away the righteous wrath of God from us and our sin and takes it upon himself on the cross. The Father planned it this way, and the Son willingly agreed to this plan. We see that very clearly in Mark 14. Out of love for us, Jesus chose to suffer for us. One helpful way to remember it is like this. God himself gave himself 
to rescue us from himself. God himself gave himself to rescue us from himself. And you see, it had to be this way. There wasn't another way that it could be done. There's no other way that maintains God's justice, his permanent settled opposition to wrongdoing, and at the same time justify us. In other words, make us right with him. You see, if God forgave us just by brushing sin under the carpet, he would be giving up his role as judge. And we don't want that. We, we want a judge who is just. We like judges with whom we know where we stand. There's something deep within us that demands justice, that depends on justice. And so when 96 football fans die from being crushed in the Hillsborough disaster, we demand justice for them. When 23 people die at the hands of a suicide bomber at a concert in Manchester, again, we demand justice. When residents of the Grenfell Tower lose their homes and their loved ones to a fire after they've repeatedly raised concerns about the tower's safety, we demand justice. When you know, human slavery is still going on in 2017 in our country, again, we demand justice. Likewise, if God was to stop being a just judge, he'd be compromising his own character. Part of his character is his justice. So God must judge us. And the wonder of the gospel is that God does not set aside his justice, he turns it on himself. You see, at the, at the cross, God's wrath is fully satisfied and his love is fully shown. That's why Paul can, call, can say that God is both just and the one who justifies. He is a just judge who does not change his opposition to sin, but he is also a loving father who has done everything, everything to restore and to forgive all who believe. And this for the Christian offers the sort of assurance that Luther never had until he began to understand that righteousness of God is a gift, a gift given through the Lord Jesus Christ. It's a gift. It's declared of us. It's given to us. And Luther, when he came to understand this, the way he described it was alien righteousness. Now that's nothing to do with little green men. What he means by alien righteousness is that it's from outside of us. It's from out with us. It's external. It's, it's imparted to us. It's a, a declaration that we have a right, a positive standing before God. And this is huge, absolutely huge, because if you think your faith is the cause of your salvation, you will stop looking to Christ and start looking to faith. And when you have doubts or trials or temptations, as you will, as you have, it will worry you. In these situations, you like Luther did before he discovered all this, have started to see your faith as a work. But you see, faith is only the instrument through which you receive your salvation. It's not the cause of it. It's simply the attitude of coming to God with empty hands. The famous Puritan Jonathan Edwards put it like this, you contribute nothing to your salvation except the sin that made it necessary. Or Augustus Toplady, he, he wrote this hymn, uh, Rock of Ages cleft for me which we, we sing here from time to time and he says this nothing in my hand I bring simply to the cross I cling naked come to thee for dress helpless look to thee for grace foul I to the fountain fly wash me saviour or I die 
Faith is simply the, the attitude of coming to God with empty hands, saying, I contribute nothing, saying, nothing in my hand I bring. And this is because the gospel and the Christian faith as a whole is not about what we do, but rather what Christ has done. And so we flee to him and we rest on him for the salvation that he has won for us at the cross. And if you're here today and you're visiting, uh, we're very glad you're here. And I want to finish with a point uh, that is maybe directed to you if you do not know what it is to have faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. My third point is this, the offer of faith is to everyone. Notice in verse 22, it says, this righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. Everyone who believes in the Lord Jesus Christ and has faith in him alone will be made right with God. Notice how this statement is exclusive and inclusive at the same time. Christianity is a closed shop and an open shop at the same time, if you like. That might sound a little bit odd, but let me explain what I mean. It's exclusive, as we've seen, in the sense that it must be faith in the Lord Jesus Christ that we're talking about. No one else. There's no other name by which men can be saved. But it's inclusive in the sense that it's given to all who believe. That's what the the text says. That's not to say everyone will believe. We see that in the parable of the sower. And we see it demonstrated when Jesus is hanging on the cross. One thief rejects the gift of salvation and the other one receives it. The point is the offer is open to everyone if they will receive it as the gift that it is. But how is faith received? Let's get practical here. Romans 10.17 says that faith is a gift from God. We've established that already, but get this. It comes through the hearing of the word of God. That's what Romans 10.17 says. The real God, the, the God of the Bible, is a God who has revealed himself. He has spoken in the scriptures, and he has given us promises for us to trust. And faith is quite simply trusting in them. As I said early, earlier, faith is simply coming to God with empty hands and taking the gift that God has presented. And the effect of trusting in these promises of God, and, and the God of these promises, is life-transforming. Whoever you are, you need this. And so I want to be really clear with you. Don't think that you've got faith when all you have is this general optimism that I mentioned at the start, this kind of general vague hopefulness about the future. You only have faith, saving faith, when your faith is in the Lord Jesus Christ alone. Not in yourself or your morals or your religious efforts, but in Jesus Christ alone. Faith is the most important thing in the whole world. It's what links formerly unrighteous people to a holy God, a God of transforming love who saves us from sin and ultimately from eternal punishment and hell. Faith brings us into life and joy and peace and freedom and wisdom and fruitfulness. And it's simply this trusting and believing what God has told us. And so I ask you, have you ever seriously given thought to the reality of faith and the possibility of the new life that comes from faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm gonna lead us in a simple prayer of response shortly. And if you'd like to receive the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ, you're very welcome to join in with me. But let me just make this absolutely clear. When we talk about faith alone, we're talking about faith in Jesus alone, not in anything we do. We're talking about a faith in Jesus that makes us righteous, that makes us declared 
to be right before God. And when we're talking about faith in Jesus and a righteousness, this is a, a faith and a righteousness that is available to everyone who believes. You can receive it today. How amazing to think you could walk out this door this morning assured of your future, knowing that your sins have been dealt with and that you are right with God. And so why don't you, if, if you wish, to take that time just now to pray with me just now. Let's, let's pray. The word should come up on the screen. Dear God, I know that I've lived as your enemy and that I'm under the power of sin. Sorry for placing my faith in something or someone other than your son, Jesus Christ. Thank you that you sent Jesus to die on the cross in my place for my sin. Please forgive me and change me so that I may live with Jesus as my Lord. Amen. Well, if you prayed that prayer, why not tell someone about it? I would love to help you as you grow as a Christian. And so there'll be people at the front here after the service who would be glad to pray with you. And there'll be people at the information desk who can tell you about some of the resources that we have to help you grow as a Christian.